when we look at the context of this conversation that uh, Jesus has here, it comes immediately after one of the most obscure little theological debates you could imagine. The Sadducees and the Pharisees want to know who a fellow will be married to in heaven if he's had a number of different wives while on earth. This is the minutiae of the interest of theologians. In Jesus' response to that, this scribe hears the response and goes, this guy is sharp. He's got a, a good set of values and priorities. I'm going to ask him the critical question. What is the most important commandment in all of Scripture? Jesus offers a two-part answer and the first part is completely uncontroversial. In fact, pretty much everybody in the ancient Near Eastern world and to be fair, pretty much everybody in the world up until the last hundred years would have said this is the most important thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Whatever God that might have been for the person you were talking to, of course. Uh, All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. There's nothing controversial about that. It is, however, delightfully vague and undefined. Uh, All the Jews would have agreed with it, but it doesn't have any specific expressions. What does it mean to love God? How do we know how to love God? You know, all the uh, religions of the ancient Near East had the same problem because God by God's very nature, whether it's the God we believe in or some other supposed God, they're very inaccessible. They're kind of hard to see and touch and relate to. And so in the ancient Near East, what they did was they made idols. And you go, aha, idols, I know about idols. Isaiah was particularly scathing about idols, made the comment that a craftsman makes a wooden thing and sets it up and then worships it and all this sort of silliness. But in actual fact, it wasn't that silly. The idol everybody knew was not the God. The idol was the place you went to show respect to the God. The God was always bigger than the idol. They knew who made the bit of wood or the stone or whatever. It wasn't like it suddenly became magical. It's just it became the tangible place where you would express your devotion to your God because the God was so hard to contact. You needed somewhere to go to make your offering or to have your conversation or whatever it might have been. So they made these physical things. Now interestingly, when the Hebrew God comes on the scene and gives the Ten Commandments, one of those commandments is, do not do that. Do not make any graven images. And you might think to yourself, well, that's a bit unfair. Where do we go? When we want to offer our worship, how do we contact our distant, esoteric God? But you know why, I think, this is my opinion, why God said no graven images? Because there already exists the image of our God on earth. Do you know where? There and 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 there. Who's made in the image of God? We are the image of God. We don't need a graven image of our God. If you want to show respect to our God, you respect the image of God. 
which is everywhere around you, in the people around you and indeed in yourself. This is a very underworked piece of theology in my mind. It works a bit like, you know, the whole uh, image thing. Who's familiar with and air rods? Yes, we love and air rods. Yeah, right. They still exist apparently. I think they're plastic now. They used to be wood. And they, they're coloured rods that represent numbers. So the long orange one was 10 and the little white one was 1 and I think the blue one was 9 and... And there were particular lengths to represent the numbers. Now, nobody working with Cuisinier rods said that number 10 is an orange piece of wood. Number 10 is a concept. We, we can have 10 oranges, we can have 10 people, we, but if you take the oranges and the people away and you've just got 10, how do we do 10? And Cuisinier rods were used to help us bring into a very concrete way a number which is very unconcrete, if you know what I mean. Again, that's what the image does, the idols for the other gods and the image. We are the image of God. You want to express your devotion to God? Honour God's image everywhere around us. So that's where, of course, Jesus comes in and says, the second command is just like the first one, love your neighbour as yourself. That would have been much more controversial. Surprisingly, um, it's controversial because it's, it's so practical, it's so inescapable in a way. It's much more difficult to have a range of theologies about what that might mean in one sense. Love your neighbour as yourself is actually from Leviticus. So it was pretty early on. There's a passage in Leviticus that says, you shall not hate your brother or your sister in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbour, lest you incur sin because of them. So this is a choice between sinning and loving. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge, but you shall love your neighbour as yourself. We love our neighbour so as to avoid sinning. We love our neighbour, we show respect to the image of God so as to not be disrespectful to our God. It's, it's pretty high theology in a way, isn't it? It's very practical, but pretty high theology. It goes on um, when the, the scribe hears uh, Jesus' answer, the scribe says to him, you're perfectly right, teacher, what you've stated. Uh, he is one and there's no one else beside him and to love him with all your heart, mind and understanding and all your strength and love one neighbour as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. So immediately the scribe contrasts the simplicity of this uh, directive to honour people and honour God by honouring people with the whole religious mechanism, the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and this kind of stuff. Again, this is not a new idea either. Uh, he's quoting from a passage in Samuel and it's a passage where King Saul, the first king of Israel, was given instructions by God through, uh, through Samuel to go and wipe out the Amalekites and whatever you think about um, all of that, we'll leave that to one side for a moment, but part of the command was to wipe everything out, including all the livestock 
and all their possessions and everything. So I know there's a lot of problems inherent in that little thing I'm sweeping over there. We'll have to uh, look at that another time. Saul decides to allow the soldiers to take some of the livestock and not kill them all. And Samuel comes along later and goes, "Uh, did you mishear what I said? Uh, God was pretty keen for you to wipe everything out. And uh, Saul goes, oh, yes, 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 yes. no, that's exactly what we do. Uh, Wiped it all out. No, no, it's very good. We would exactly what you do. No, absolutely. And it's a quite comical passage, actually. Samuel says, so um, what's the bleating I can hear? I can hear a mooing in the background. What's going, what's going on with that? And, and Saul's kind of, oh, oh, that, yes, well, we saved a few so that we could offer some sacrifices to God, you know. It's God's stuff. And that's where Samuel comes in and says, no, no, no. To do what God says is much more important than offering a sacrifice. This is crazy. You're going to disobey God in order to get a sacrifice to sacrifice to God. The inherent uh, hypocrisy in that uh, was so clear in that story. And again, the prophets take it up, the prophet Hosea and Micah, who uh, restate the fact that the sacrificial system so easily becomes a way of trying to manipulate God rather than worship God. The prophets repeatedly say, do you think God needs rivers of oil and all these sacrifices and da-da-da? God doesn't need that stuff. He wants your heart. We have this fatal attraction with systems, I think. We have a tendency when a system is set up to work out what's the best way to work the system for the best outcome that we want. Do any of you pay tax? Yeah. Do you ever go through your tax return and work out how little tax you have to pay? You know, just go, oh, it's tax, it's all right, I'll just pay it. No. <laughs> no, we work, it, we work the system. Can I claim that? Will I get in trouble if I can't? In fact, we push it as far as we can often. I could always say that was the something else, you know. We find the system, we work out the system, we make the system work for us, it becomes our way of getting the most that we can. You know what taxation system was originally set up for? It's to share the wealth. It's to do things that none of us could do on our own, like set up schools and infrastructure and roads and police forces and community places. That's why we pay tax. It escapes us a little bit because we sometimes think, oh, it just goes to the politician's superannuation. But actually it's the way a country like ours runs. And if we didn't pay tax, we wouldn't have schools except the really wealthy elite, they would have schools. You know, we wouldn't have roads except toll roads and only those who had money could travel on them. It would be a complete user-pay system. And then you'd have divisions in the community. So anyway, enough said. Systems and even religious systems we will work out how to work them so that our agenda becomes paramount and we get what we want out of them. You know, one of the most uh, confronting parts of this little story, in my view, is when the scribe responds to Jesus and the scribe's clearly a smart guy and he can hear all that Jesus is saying and Jesus says, you know what, you are not far 
from the kingdom of God. You are really, really close. Reminds me of a time uh, I was out at the cricket ground uh, watching Australia. I think they were doing all right. I can't remember. But I was not far from the Australian cricket team. As they came out, I was in the members, they came out of the little race and I could have leant over and touched them. I wasn't in the Australian cricket team. I wasn't actually playing cricket, but I was not far. I was really, really close. And I think Jesus is saying to the scribe, you know, you're not far. You are really, really close, but you're not in the game yet. You haven't actually entered in. See, the concept, the idea is not the life. We have been so heavily uh, influenced by Greek and a Plato thinking, philosophy, um, and the idea has become such the main game. I think it was Descartes that said, I think, therefore I am. And he was trying to explain that we must exist because to doubt that I exist means that I have a brain to think about it, therefore I exist. And it was crazy stuff in a way. But we think that when we think the idea, when we understand the theology, when it's come into my mind to go, aha, that we are in the game that we have become part of the kingdom. We even have this thing, or I have an evangelical background, you get people to sit down and if they pray the sinner's prayer and agree, they're in. As long as they've got the ideas in their head and they say yes to them, that's the main game. But it remains so disembodied. And in a sense, I think our bodies recognise that. We kind of feel the disjuncture between what we've just agreed to or what we believe in and the way we live so much of the time. And it's only as we put this stuff into actual lived practice that we experience the actual lived experience of the kingdom. The idea is close. It's right at the door. You can reach out and touch the players as they walk past, but you're not in the game. You know what to do, you just haven't done it yet. And I think that's a big challenge for us. Because the thing is, we do believe, we, sorry, we do live what we believe. And I've said that here before, and I'm going to say it again here, I'm sure. What we live shows us what we believe. It shows us what we value. We never fail to enact the things we actually value. That's a confronting thing to hear, I think, because we often like to justify the way we believe, the uh, way we live, and, and set up very complex belief systems that make us feel more comfortable with our already established lifestyle. We might like the idea of the kingdom, but it's the extent to which we enact it that displays how much we really believe it. And the greatest risk for many of us as believers is to think that it's all going to come. That uh, Jesus will return and sort it all out and certainly there's indications in scripture like that but my fear is when Jesus returns and sorts it all out if we haven't actually lived it the sorting out is not going to be our favourite moment. We will suddenly be exposed as those who have been fooling ourselves 
as those who have believed a nice story but never actually engaged fully in it and given our lives to it and that will be an uncomfortable moment. You see, it is all about loving God. It's about loving God in the most tangible way possible which is to honour the image of God which is all around you in the people, not just the people of God, but people. So every time a person is dishonoured, the image of God is dishonoured. That's something that matters to us. Lunig, Michael Lunig once said, it is as simple and as difficult as that. Nothing could be more simple and yet nothing could be more challenging. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God so worthy of our love, our honour, our respect, and we thank you that you have made us in your image. Sometimes there's a bit of grime on that and it's not altogether clear the extent to which we reflect that, but we are your image all the same. And there is no other place, no other image we can go to to show our honour and respect for you. It's not the religious stuff as the prophets have made clear and as this scribe understood as well. It's not about the sacrifices. It's always about the people. Thank you that your spirit uncovers our heart, reveals our our play-acting and our pretending and gives us the grace to come clean and to be set free to be people of love. Lord, we want to give ourselves to you as people of love and so honour you in all our relationships. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.